0: Well, welcome back to the uh, second panel in our program. Uh, This one is on the grassroots and political response to kilo, And uh, as uh, Ilya Soman just outlined in his remarks, um, the response was uh, deafening. It uh, was really heartening as well. The American people finally woke up to the fact that um, there is a uh, serious uh, threat to their property rights and they better uh, pay attention to it all across the country uh, as our speakers today in this panel will uh, detail uh, the reaction uh, both at the legislative and the judicial level as well in the popular press was very clear. The um, not all of it, however, was uh, serious. Uh, we had a good deal of the legislation that uh, was just cosmetic and uh, worse than that, in five of the states, there was nothing done whatsoever. States like Connecticut, where kilo took place, and New York state. Uh, and of course, the worst part there is that those are the states where you most need reform and you're less likely to get it. Well, without further ado, let me uh, introduce our, our speakers. I'm going to e- introduce each one before he or she speaks so let's start with uh, Dana Berliner who uh, serves as the litigation director uh, at the Institute for Justice where she's worked as a lawyer since 1994 along with co-counsel Scott Bullock uh, she represented the homeowners in Kilo v. New London and after the Kilo decision Dana worked intensively with state legislatures to assist them in reforming their laws as well as citizen groups drafting referenda to reform state laws, the focus of Dana's litigation at uh, the Institute for Justice has been property rights. She successfully represented the Community Youth Athletic Center, a boxing gym and mentoring program for at-risk youth, which successfully challenged the city of uh, national C- the city of national cities' auth- uh, authorization uh, of uh, taking uh, for CYAC's property. For private development. The California Court of Appeal ruled in 2013 that the authorization of eminent domain was invalid and that National City had violated California's Public Records Act. Dana also represented the Holman business owners in Norwood, Ohio, who you know, on July 26, 2006, secured a unanimous ruling from the Ohio Supreme Court. THE CITY COULD NOT TAKE THE PROPERTY FOR PRIVATELY OWNED SHOPPING MALL uh, AND LIFETIME CENTER. IF I'M NOT MISTAKEN, THAT WAS ONE OF THE the BIGGEST DECISIONS THAT CAME DOWN AFTER KILO uh, IN in FAVOR OF THE PROPERTY OWNERS. Um, SHE SECURED A RULING uh, THAT THE VILLAGE OF PORT CHESTER, NEW YORK VIOLATED DUE PROCESS IN ITS USE OF EMINENT DOMAIN TO SECURE WATERFRONT PROPERTY. AND THEN SHE authored, uh, AUTHORED OPENING THE FLOODGATES, EMINENT DOMAIN ABUSE, in the post-Kilo world, a report on the use and threatened use of eminent domain for private development in the years since the Kilo decision. Dana also authored Public Power, Private Gain, a five-year state-by-state report examining the abuse of eminent domain, the first ever nationwide study on the abuse of eminent domain, which was released in 2003. Please, Please welcome Dana Berliner.
1: Thank you, and thank you very much uh, to the Cato Institute for having me here to talk about one of my very favorite topics, uh, eminent domain, and particularly what has happened since Kelo. Now, Ilya Soman gave you some picture of kind of the before the Kelo decision came down, but I want to just stress that because before Kelo came down, this was a backwater of the law. Virtually no one had ever heard of eminent domain, despite the fact that it was used throughout the country to take people's homes and businesses away from them, despite the fact that it had been used in the 1950s and the 1960s to completely devastate neighborhoods, it was still not commonly known, not written about in any but local newspapers or local television. There was virtually no legislative reform going on. When there was, it was a little bit of nibbling at the edges. Um, I think in the 10 years preceding Kilo, there had maybe been three states that had done anything related to eminent domain legislatively. Um, and then there were a few state court decisions, but not much, and a lot of the kind of deference that, of course, we then saw in the Kilo decision itself. There furthermore was absolutely no grassroots activism against eminent domain. People experienced eminent domain occurring, uh, thought that they were alone in the world, and if they did not have the money to fight it, they would cave in. And that was pretty much what was going on up until the moment the decision came down. And then everything changed. There was a just overwhelming backlash against it. You heard about the opinion numbers, which were very much opposed, of course, um, in the 80s and 90s, and they're still there. But there was also tremendous change politically. There were, just to give you the basic outlines, 40 states that changed their statutes, 11 that changed their state constitutions, 30 that narrowed the definition of public use, 25 changed their definitions of blight, nine states changed the burden of proof, putting the burden of proof on the government for the very first time, and then two states just said you can't transfer condemned property to private parties at all. I'm going to talk about some of the disagreements um, that Ilya and I have about the extent of the legislative reforms. But over there are some states that had um, weak reforms, although very few actually, Roger, that I believe had cosmetic-only reforms. There were some states that had OK reforms, quite a number that had good reforms, and then some that had really good reforms. And the bottom line is two-thirds of the states, you are vastly better off now than you were uh, just a few days before the decision came down. Now, um, we can't lose sight of what that accomplishment means. It does not mean that everyone in every state is protected. New York being the primary example. It was a terrible abuser before the decision. It did nothing about it. And it's still a terrible abuser. But everywhere else, the picture has changed. And that is a huge shift. Um, Let me talk a little bit about why I'm more sanguine about the, uh, the effects of political reform than than ILIA is. And part of that is actually also the inclusion of of the results of judicial decisions. So for example, California, which I fully admit had pretty weak seeming uh, reform in terms of its legislation, we secured a decision that made it stronger. So that actually is possible now to challenge a blight designation, Um, or I should say more possible, because um, people did sometimes successfully challenge them before, and there is now even stronger precedent for doing that. In addition, California, because of its budget crisis, just completely got rid of all redevelopment agencies, and uh, that has certainly cut back very, very significantly on eminent domain abuse there. One state that turned out to be more of a problem than I think I initially thought, and for different reasons than Ilya thought, was Colorado, which had previously been a place that had not very much eminent domain abuse. And although their blight laws are actually not bad, in my opinion. Um, They change their procedures in a strange way that now makes it very difficult to challenge eminent domain. Um, In particular, they are failing, I believe, unconstitutionally failing to give notice of your opportunity to challenge your blight designation. And this creates a, uh, a problem for people who are unhappy about the use of eminent domain for private development or for any kind of development as a result of blight, but that is unconstitutional. It's been struck down in other places and it will be struck down eventually there, at which point Colorado, I think, will turn out to be pretty good again. Um, One other major issue that that Ilya and I differ on is there are a number of states that did leave in place somewhat general criteria for areas that were blighted but they required a property-by-property examination. The rule before used to be an area just could be designated as blighted, and you didn't really have to look at the actual properties. So, for example, um, in in Philadelphia, they designated some huge portion of the city to be blighted based on the fact that 10% of the properties lacked parking. You can't do that anymore um, in, in Pennsylvania, but the point being that it used to be that it was just almost a glance was enough. Requiring property by property, even when your definitions are vague and bad, requires a lot of work and people, what we've been seeing is that when they have to go property by property, when they have to designate carefully, a lot more property doesn't get condemned and you can't do the, we're going to wipe out a neighborhood. Instead, there's a property here, a property there. Maybe it really would be better not to do this via eminent domain. Because the reason that cities and developers want eminent domain is they want to just wipe out huge areas, usually. When you are forced to go property by property, the game changes. And that has been, I think, something that makes a number of the states that Ilya rates low as actually better than he thought. And I'd include um, Iowa, North Carolina, West Virginia in that category. The other thing that has happened is that several of the states that had either no reform or really weak reform had great court decisions. That includes Ohio, um, the case that Roger mentioned when he was introducing me. Um, Ohio both said economic development is not a public use in our state, and furthermore, blight means something better be really wrong with it. It can't be like, it can't just be any neighborhood or you could imagine something nicer there, which is typically what cities have been using as their standard oh, we could imagine this neighborhood that's been there for 25 years is a brand-new, really pretty neighborhood, and therefore it's blighted. Can't do that in Ohio anymore. Um, Oklahoma also had a good decision. They had no legislative reform, but a really nice uh, decision shortly after Kelo rejecting it. So putting some of these together, I think the picture is actually – substantially, oh I'm sorry, Missouri is another one. Missouri had weak reform, but it's had a couple of pretty important state high court decisions um, rejecting, uh, based on its weak statute, actually rejecting a huge development project that it said violated the statute because it really was for economic development. And then starting to look at the evidence of blight, something that Missouri never did before uh, the backlash occurred. So all of that put together, I think we are looking in general at a much better picture of what the states are doing than we were before. Um, now, let me uh, let me talk a little bit about how we got there. Um, firstly... IJ resolved that we had to get there. We were so distraught by that decision that we just decided it was a loss and we were going to win anyway. And we therefore launched the Hands Off My Home campaign. We took the states. We divided them up amongst me, Scott, Steven Anderson, who's there, and a couple other attorneys and we started working with activists and legislatures in every single state. We provided testimony. We helped them draft things. We provided information. We worked extensively with national groups like the NAACP, um, particularly in Florida, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, um, in Minnesota. They were indispensable to the reform efforts there. And that made a huge difference. We also worked with state-based reform groups like Jeremy Hopkins. So all of that um, changed the picture of what happened. We also did and continue to do follow-up litigation. And we released reports, including, for example, uh, victimizing the vulnerable, which statistically proved that eminent domain does, in fact, get used, as we had been saying, primarily in areas that are poorer, less educated, and more minority than similar areas in their city. But eminent domain is used against the powerless, and so we were able then to show that statistically. I also want to talk for a moment about grassroots activism, because that is something that also has completely changed. Since Kelo came down, we have worked with activists in 62 communities to defeat the use of eminent domain against 16,000 homes and businesses. And many of these were for economic development, but a lot of them were not. Because the fact is that now people know that this is an abusive system and they are willing to fight it. And that kind of grassroots resistance and working with communities to do that has been remarkably successful even in places like New York and New Jersey, which are very bad, judicially, usually, about eminent domain. So what then is next? What do we need to do to further eradicate the abuse? Well, certainly, the states that have not improved their laws need to do so, New York being the chief among those. I think legal challenges will continue to be important to reinforce good legislative changes. And actually, some states are still making continued improvements to their statutes. Um, North Carolina, I think it keeps trying, and eventually it's going to get there and make its law a better law. Activism is going to continue to be really, really important and important not just for economic development takings, but for like they were talking about in the prior panel, totally ridiculous, unjust, unnecessary takings for roads, for universities, and for anything where, which is pretty much everything, where eminent domain does not have to be used. And in fact, private purchase, or if it's actually a government use, not that frequent government purchase, Uh, could be used but activism is going to be a critical part of preventing eminent domain abuse and we will be working on all of those fronts legislative activism and of course court cases in the coming years thank you
0: thank you uh, Dana Uh, in um, referencing the um, cosmetic character of some of the state uh, reforms, so-called reforms. I was uh, drawing from um, the chart that uh, Ilya Soman has in his book about those states. He didn't use the word cosmetic, but he does indeed take a somewhat more jaundiced view of the matter, I think, than you do. But in your discussion of the questionable blight criteria that we find in so many of these states, I was reminded of the... Uh, CBS 60 Minutes uh, uh, segment which uh, focused on uh, this issue after uh, Kelo came down. Uh, It was Ed Bradley uh, interviewing uh, the mayor of this small uh, suburb outside of Cleveland that was engaged in uh, blight reduction, uh, eminent domain uh, proceedings. And uh, she proceeded, they were being, she was being interviewed in her home. She, was, um, he, she proceeded to list the various criteria for determining whether a home was blighted, such as the fact that it had only one bathroom, that it had a detached garage, and so forth. And when she got through, he turned to her and said, well, that pretty much describes the house that we're in right now, your house. That uh, took her back uh, a little bit. Uh, We're going to now hear uh, from uh, someone who is focused especially on a single state, uh, his own state of Virginia, although his work goes beyond that, um, Jeremy Hopkins. Uh, He is a partner with a law firm of Waldo and Lyle, uh, a Virginia law firm uh, that exclusively represents property owners in eminent domain cases throughout Virginia and in Washington, D.C. His practice is devoted entirely to defending the constitutional rights and individual liberties of property owners in eminent domain and inverse condemnation cases. Those are the regulatory takings cases I mentioned uh, in my introductory remarks, uh, representing property owners at all levels of the state and federal government. Uh, Jeremy has participated in various legislative committees and workshops. He participates in radio programs, gives public seminars, publishes articles and other material, some of which have been cited by state and federal courts. And he serves as a faculty member at various, <coughs> excuse me, state um, and national conferences on eminent domain and property rights. He also has worked closely with legislators, lobbyists, and various organizations to to obtain the uh, legislative changes necessary to protect the rights of Virginia property owners, including the property rights amendment to the Virginia Constitution, which became effective in 2013. Please welcome Jeremy
2: Hopkins. Morning, and, and I want to start by thanking the Cato Institute for allowing me to be here and to speak. And uh, to me, it's a real privilege and an honor to be here, and I appreciate it greatly. And uh, I'll go ahead and apologize. These lights are very bright, so f- for you, uh, the few of you that are in the front row, I apologize for the glare coming off this bald head. But it's uh, it's very bright up here. But uh, Dana, uh, you and Scott and Steven Anderson, the Institute for Justice, you truly changed my life when you took the Kelo case because prior to Kelo, when I would tell people. I was an eminent domain attorney they would look at me with a blank stare similar to what some of the judges do today when i go into their courtroom they say "Well, this is an eminent domain case and you get a blank stare and those that were close to me would even say that sounds pretty boring <laughs> now when i tell people i'm an eminent domain attorney they look at me and they say really were you involved with that connecticut case it's the first thing i i hear and yeah, as a trial and an appellate attorney, uh, when you hear other attorneys arguing, it's, it's always difficult. You want to stand up and give the response. And, and Mr. Horton uh, made some comments earlier, and I certainly appreciated him being here. And, and it's a lot of courage to come here from the other side and to speak uh, in this audience. But one of the things that he said, and I'm, I'm going to get into my outline in a minute, but he said that he doesn't want to draw a bright line. And that jumped out at me because the takings clause has two protections. One, your property can only be taken if it's for a public use. And two, even if it is a public use, the government or the condemning authority has to provide just compensation. And what struck me about that is that condemning authorities across the board, when it's the just compensation clause that's at issue, they argue for a bright line test. What you'll see across the the country is there are many bright line tests when it comes to the just compensation clause or the second protection. For example, in many states, Lost profits are non-compensable in an eminent domain case as a bright-line test, despite the fact they're compensable in all other areas of the law. When you have access that's lost, if you're a property owner and they take your property and you lose access, many states have a bright-line test. That's not compensable. Also, you don't get reimbursement for litigation expenses, even when the government acts in bad faith. So to hear the condemning authorities argue we shouldn't have a bright-line test is difficult for me to accept because that's exactly what they argue every day in court when it comes to the Just Compensation Clause and they're trying to reduce the compensation that's owed to the owner. And in fact, there are three cases that stand out in my mind that really reflect upon this Brightline test. One of them is a 1984 Supreme Court case, United States Supreme Court, called Kirby Forrest. And in that case, the Supreme Court said it was willing to tolerate takings in which the owner is not made whole because they wanted to apply a bright line test. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has said that the law does not deem an uncompensated taking, a wrongful act, again, due to a bright-line test. And the California courts have gone so far as to say that the courts sit to protect the government, not the citizen or the individual property owner in the court, and that as such, the court's job is to ensure that full compensation to the owner who must surrender his or her property does not stand in the way of the public project. And those are all based on bright-line tests. And so I would argue that the courts do apply bright-line tests when it comes to the takings clause, but they only do so when it's just compensation, not when it's public use. And that leads me into the outline that I was hoping to cover. I'm going to talk about the need for reform, the types of reform, the obstacles to reform, two foundational changes that I think can help achieve reform, and then I'll end with some final thoughts. The reason we need reform in the the area of eminent domain is because the laws are terribly skewed in favor of the condemning authorities. For anybody that's ever been subject to a taking, for any attorney that's ever practiced in this area, I think that's the first thing you see when you go into the courthouse is the laws are skewed. Courts for years have treated private property as a second-class right. Meanwhile, legislators have chipped away at the right to private property, and they've granted vast powers to almost limitless numbers of entities who now have the power to take private property from individuals. Many of these entities are unelected and unaccountable. Uh, One of the speakers earlier said if you're forced to move you can't vote the takers out of office. Well I would submit many of these takings are done by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. So even if you stayed you can't vote them out of office. In Virginia even the Mosquito Control Commission has the power to take a person's property. Stadium authorities have the ability to take an individual's property. We've got to, gotten to a place in our courts where the courts have said public use means something different than use. We've gotten to a place where we have a, cons- a constitution that guarantees just compensation, but our laws and our court opinions guarantee that an owner can never receive just compensation unless and only if the condemning authority benevolently makes a fair offer. There's one process called quick take that I think most citizens are not familiar with. Quick take is yet another example of how skewed the laws are. Many of you here today may be surprised to know that in Virginia and almost every other state around the nation, the government can go to the courthouse. And in Virginia, they don't even have to tell you when they're doing it. They just send you a letter and say, sometime in the future, we're going to take your property. It may be tomorrow, maybe next year, it may be three years. The government can then go to the courthouse and file a certificate in the courthouse. And all they have to do is deposit what they believe to be the value of your property and they instantly get title and ownership to your property. They can evict you. That's called the quick-take power. It's unbelievable to me that that's become accepted and commonplace in this country. We also have uh, the issue of litigation expenses. I said earlier that the laws make it clear that an owner cannot receive just compensation unless they receive a fair offer. And the reason is simple. There's a very easy example. If you take a homeowner whose property is worth 100000 $100,000, and the government offers them $50,000, and that owner goes to court and proves that his or her home was worth $100,000, but they had to spend twenty dollars to do it, that owner now goes home with $80,000 for a $100,000 home. If the government doesn't make a fair and reasonable offer, why shouldn't it have to reimburse the owner? How can we say we fulfilled the mandate of just compensation if the owner is not justly compensated? We have another area. The Landowners' Bill of Rights, as we've called it, the Virginia Institute for Public Policy has a study that's out on the table. and They were instrumental in pushing for a constitutional amendment in Virginia. They were the first organization that I was aware of that was pushing for a constitutional amendment, ironically, even before Kilo in Virginia. And they have a study, and it talks in there about Virginia's Bill of Rights. But there's also a, a federal statute under the Uniform Relocation Act that sometimes is referred to as a Landowners' Bill of Rights. What's so interesting about that is that statute gives all these rights to landowners, and then at the end it says it creates no rights or liabilities. Just last year, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that that statute, the federal statute, creates no rights. So we have a statute giving landowners all these rights that creates no rights. And to that, I submit to the legislature, why bother? What's the purpose of that? In Virginia, owners are treated like criminals. And I say that because the owners in Virginia bear the burdens of plaintiffs. They have the burden of proof, but yet they're put in the position of defendants. The government gets to speak first, and the government gets to speak last, which is typically what the plaintiff gets to do. The owner doesn't get that right in Virginia, yet the owner bears the burden of the plaintiff. And most importantly uh, is an issue of a right to a jury. In federal court, owners have no right to a jury. So the government can take your property, uh, an individual judge on his own or her own can say I'm not giving the owner a right to a jury and can appoint whatever three people that judge wants. And that's happened time and time again in our cases where we go in in federal court, we request a jury, the judge says no, and then the judge appoints three people, sometimes it's the judge's cronies that you have on there. There's a challenge right now, I think it's Aaron Fox is the name of the law firm and Thor Hearn is the attorney, he's challenging right now in Michigan the lack of a right to a jury in eminent domain cases for property owners But I lay that out there to tell you the laws aren't fair. And anybody that disputes that, I would welcome you to come to court with me for a week. You'll see it right away. And I think in the area of eminent domain, the famous warning of President Reagan rings most true, that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Because when you get that knock on the door, you're facing an uphill battle when it comes to eminent domain. Uh, earlier, uh, Mr. Palan mentioned regulatory takings. We have a case right now that we're, trying, we're seeking an appeal in the Virginia Supreme Court where we had a local airport that started p- flying planes very low over a neighborhood, rattling homes, causing noise, uh, preventing people from sleeping, windows falling off of some of the homes. And the judge in that case said that when the zoning ordinance was passed in 1999 that restricted how high owners could build their homes or how high they could main their tr- maintain trees, He said that zoning ordinance gave the public a right to fly through those owner's property. So that judge interpreted a zoning ordinance as giving the public a right to use somebody's property. It just shows how absurd some of these rulings can get. We have another ruling that's pending where the court held that an easement is not compensable. So to put that in basic terms, if you have a home that's on one parcel and your driveway is through the adjacent parcel and your driveway is an easement that allows you to get to the home, in that court, the judge said, if the government takes your easement, no compensation is due. And these are the types of opinions that we see time and time again. We just had a, an opinion from the Virginia Supreme Court that came out in April. It was a trial I had in the lower court where the government had come to my client and said, your property is worth $500,000 and made an offer. When we got to trial, the government showed up and said, no, it's really only worth 250 dollars And by the way, that money we deposited into court, you need to pay it back to us even though they had already taken the property and already built their road on my client's property. What happened in that case is the trial judge did exactly what judges have done for years in Virginia, and he said it would be unfairly prejudicial. And some other reasons, he gave some other reasons, but he said, you can't tell the jury what the government told you before. You can't tell the jury the government told you your home was worth a half million. We got a unanimous decision out of the Virginia Supreme Court in April reversing that And now in Virginia, if the government does a bait and switch, if they try to play fast and loose, at least now the jury can hear all the evidence. And so that leads me into the types of reform. When you hear about all this and you hear about these decisions and these laws, the first thing I think of is the legislature has failed us miserably. So you have two types of reform, constitutional or legislative. Legislative reform is fleeting. What the legislature gives today, they can take away tomorrow. But when the people speak and when the people enact a constitutional amendment, it has permanence. And I think it was Mark Twain that said nobody's rights are secure when the legislature is in session. And it was that very reason that drove us, that drove Virginians to move for a constitutional amendment to not be satisfied with legislative reform. And we went one step further in Virginia, and I'm hoping that other states are going to do likewise. And I think we're going to see a trend of... Litigation over the rights to a jury, litigation over just compensation, which is that second protection, but Virginia addressed not only the public use clause, but if you look at our constitution now, it also addressed some of the just compensation issues. Some of the bright line rules that kept Virginians from being justly compensated were removed by our constitutional amendment, where now at least Virginians have a fighting chance to be made whole and you may ask yourself, how did we get to this point? How are the laws so skewed? why and those on the other side would say I'm biased, and to them I say the facts are the facts. You can, you can read the statutes. They speak for themselves. How did we get statutes that were so lopsided? It's very simple. It's the taker's lobby or the condemning authorities' lobby. While the individual is busy working, busy paying their taxes, we have an army of government lobbyists that are down at the legislature year after year after year, and Richmond is a prime example of it. And the most perverse aspect of this practice is that these government funded lobbyists are forcing property owners to fund the demise of their own property rights. What happens in Virginia, because government funded lobbyists are permitted there, the local governments, they will tax owners, they'll tax their property and turn around and use that tax money to hire lobbyists to go down to Richmond and strip them of their property rights. And it's really a perverse practice. The other thing that we see are misleading fiscal impact statements. Anytime there's legislative reform that's proposed, you hear these the outcry that the sky is falling. This will prohibit development, prohibit growth. And those fiscal impact statements are misleading. And I say that because the cost of the project is what it is. If you have a project that, where the land acquisition costs $100,000, the building costs $100,000, and there's going to be $100,000 of damage inflicted to the property, whether that's putting a business out of business or just simply damage from a partial taking, the cost is $300,000. The only thing that changes is who pays for it. When the government chooses not to pay damages, it doesn't mean that cost isn't there. It just means we're putting that cost disproportionately on the back of the individual owner who has to surrender his or her property. So I submit there are two foundational changes that can help achieve reform. The first is to prohibit government funded lobbyists. That's largely what put us where we are today. And second is, I think we need to record votes at all levels, in subcommittee, in committee, and on the floor. And if you look at Virginia's vote on the constitutional amendment, what's very interesting, there were many legislators that voted against it, even on the floor, the first vote. But when it became clear that it was going to pass, it was unanimous. And they all now tout that they voted for it. Yet, when you look at the truth and you look at the facts, there were many that didn't. And I'll I'll end with some some final thoughts that... Private property is truly a bipartisan issue. So anybody seeking reform, I would encourage you to seek support in all camps. As Gideon Canner, a champion of property rights, once said, in his opinion, Democrats don't want private property and Republicans don't want to pay for it, is his analysis. And there's some truth to that. But there's also truth in we find people on both sides of the fence that are willing to support private property rights. There were people on both sides of the fence that stepped forward in Virginia when it was time to get our constitutional amendment. And I would tell you this, that property truly does undergird every other right. As uh, Arthur Lee, uh, one of Virginia's founders, and Professor Ely, who wrote a book on that quote, said, property is the guardian of every other right. And if you look through the Bill of Rights, you can see that. Whether it's the right to free speech, what good is it without the right to own property from which you can speak, or the printing press, right to bear arms, what good is it without the right to, to own the firearms? You can go all the way through the Bill of Rights and see private property undergirds every other one and it's truly, gen- it's truly neutral. It protects everybody regardless of race, gender, age, socioeconomic status and it divides power. It empowers the individual and it provides a sphere in which that individual can act unmolested by government. So I would just encourage everybody interested in this issue to remain vigilant because what we've seen in Virginia and what we've seen throughout the nation is With these reforms, the condemning authorities have ramped up their efforts, they've become more aggressive, more creative. So remain vigilant and keep fighting. We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go.
0: Well, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, As we saw in the last uh, session from um, one of the charts that uh, Ilya Soman put up on the board, The reaction to the Kelo decision was not only overwhelming, but it cut across political and demographic lines. It was truly an outrage of the American people. We're going to hear now from someone who can address that point. Hillary Shelton is the Senior Vice President for Policy and Advocacy and the Director of the NAACP's Washington Bureau. He's responsible for advocating the federal public policy issues agenda of the NAACP to the US government. His government affairs portfolio includes crucial issues such as affirmative action, equal employment protection, access to quality education, stopping gun violence, ending racial profiling, abolishing the death penalty, access to comprehensive healthcare, voting rights protection, federal sentencing reform, and a host of civil rights enforcement expansion and protection issues. You cover the waterfront, don't you? Boy. Uh, Previously, he has served as Federal Liaison, Assistant Director to the Government Affairs Department of the College Fund, UNCF, and as the Federal Policy Program Director of the United Methodist Church's Social Justice Advocacy Agency, the General Board of Church and Society. Sheldon uh, serves um, as a number of uh, on a number of national boards of directors, including the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, the Center for Democratic Renewal, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, and the Congressional Black Caucus Institute, among many others. He played an integral role in the crafting and final passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1991, and was also instrumental in ushering through the Civil Rights Restoration Act, the Violence Against Women Act, the Hate Crime Statistics Acts, and too many more to name here. Please welcome Hillary Shelton.
3: uh, Thank you very much, and and good morning. I guess it's still morning. Well, a couple more minutes. I'm absolutely honored to be here on behalf of the NAACP, the United States' oldest and largest grassroots-based civil rights organization. We have 2,200 membership units throughout the United States. We are literally in every state in our country, but also on military bases in Italy, Germany, Korea, and Japan. It's an interesting thing as we think about the NAACP's role over the last 106 years in many, many areas of integration of our public institutions, private institutions, and other issues and concerns. I'm honored to be here. but. Of course, there's really sad occasions we discuss the concerns and challenges around eminent domain. Now, given our nation's sorry history around issues of racism, bigotry, and basic disregards on the part of too many of elected and appointed officials, the concerns and rights of racial and ethnic minority Americans, it should come to no surprise that the NAACP has been very disappointed with the Kelo decision. Let me say as I talk about the Kelo decision, what we're talking about is really an economic constraint. That is, in essence, when we think about even the definition of racism, I know the word racism gets cast around quite often in our society. But there doesn't seem to be much of a clear definition in many people's minds and and hearts. But let me just say, as we think about the NAACP and this issue, racism by definition, I think, can best be described by a Catholic priest I worked with some years ago. He described racism as racial prejudice plus power. When we talk about issues of Kilo, we really are talking about economic power, economic power throughout our country and our states and throughout our townships, cities, and and other uh, groupings. So in fact, we were one of, because of our concerns, we were one of many of several groups to file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in support of the new London, Connecticut homeowners, make it very clear on behalf of those homeowners. In September 2005, just after the Kilo decision, I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee at that hearing, following my testimony, I had senators from both sides of the aisle and from throughout the ideological spectrum agree with the positions of the NAACP and, quite frankly, yours as well. In essence, I even had one senator tell me that he had received more constituent correspondence, all of it negative, about, the key, about kilo than about any other issue, including proposed pay raises from members of Congress. I subsequently testified before the Congress on this issue two more times in the course of six months, and the reaction was invariably the same from all parties. Racial and ethnic minorities are not just affected more often by the exercise of eminent domain power, but we are almost always affected differently, and quite frankly, because of our condition more profoundly. The expansions of eminent domain are allowed to have allowed the government or its designees to take property simply by asserting that it can put the property to a higher use will systematically sanction transfers from those with less resources, quite frankly, those with more. The historic and eminent domain is rife with abuses specifically targeted at racial and ethnic minorities and poor neighborhoods. Indeed, the displacement of African Americans in urban renewal projects are so intertwined with urban renewal that we began calling it black removal. The vast disparities of African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities that have been removed from their homes due to eminent domain actions are well documented. A 2004 study estimated that 1,600 African American neighborhoods were destroyed by municipal projects in Los Angeles alone. In San Jose, California, 95% of the properties targeted for economic redevelopment are Hispanic or Asian-owned, despite the fact that only 30% of the businesses in that area are owned by racial or ethnic minorities. In Mount Holly Township in New Jersey, officials were targeted for economic redevelopment of neighborhoods in which the percentage of African-American residents, 44%, Is twice that of the entire township and nearly triple that in Burlington Burlington County. Lastly, according to a 1989 study, 90% of the 10,000 families displaced by highway projects in Baltimore, yes, in the city of Baltimore, were African Americans. The motives behind the disparities vary. Many of the studies I mentioned contend that the goal of many of these displacements is to segregate and maintain the isolation of poor, minority, and otherwise outcast populations. Furthermore, condemnation in low-income or predominantly minority neighborhoods are often easier to accomplish because these groups are less likely and have fewer resources to contest the actions either politically or uh, are in our nation's courts. Lastly, municipalities often look to areas with low poverty value or low property values when deciding where to pursue redevelopment projects because it costs the condemning authorities less and thus the state and local governments gain more financially when they replace areas of low poverty values with those of low property values with those of higher property values. Thus, even if you dismiss all other motivations, allowing municipalities to pursue eminent domain for private development will clearly have a disparate impact on African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities throughout our country. Not only are African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities more likely to be subject to eminent domain, but the negative impact of these takings on these men, women, children, and families is much greater. First, the term just compensation raised a little bit earlier today, when used in eminent domain cases, is almost always a misnomer. The fact that a particular project or property is identified and designated for economic development almost certainly means that the market is currently undervaluing that property or that the property has some trapped value that the market is not yet recognized. Moreover, when an area is taken for economic development, low-income families are driven out of their communities and find that they cannot afford to live in revitalized neighborhoods. The remaining affordable housing in the area are almost also certain to become less so. It's sad that there are often no considerations for the real considerations of the poor or those struggling to be able to survive in our society. When the goal is increased in the area's tax base, it only makes sense that the previous low income resident will not be able to remain in that area. This is born out of not only by common sense, but also by statistics. One study in the mid 80s showed that 86% of those relocated by an exercise of eminent domain power were paying more rent at their new residence and with the median rent almost doubling. Furthermore, to the extent that such exercise of takings powers is more likely to occur in areas with significant racial and ethnic minority populations, and even assuming a property motive on the part of the government, the effect will likely be, ups to, uh, will likely be to upset organized minority communities. As we think about minority communities and, and any poor communities, we're not just talking about people that are paying rent and look at that statistically, but we're talking about people who have actually created community. The poor woman that lives across the street from another woman, they both have children. They share many of the responsibilities. That is, one may decide that she will go to the grocery store while the other baby sits for both. Community, the kind of things that we share in our neighborhoods, the kind of things that help make things work, even for those with lower means. This dispersion both eliminates or at at the very least dramatically undermines established community support mechanisms and has a deleterious effect on these groups' abilities to exercise what little political power they may have established. In fact, the very threat of such takings will also hinder the development of stronger ethnic and racial minority communities as well as others. The incentive to invest in one's community financially and otherwise directly correlates with confidence in one's ability to realize the fruits of such such labor. By broadening the permissible uses of eminent domain in a way that is not limited by specific criterion, many minority neighborhoods will be at the increased risk of having property taken. Individuals in those areas will thus have less incentive to engage in community building and improvement for fear that such efforts will be wasted or later taken away. In conclusion, allow me to reiterate what, by allowing pure economic development motives to constitute public use for eminent domain purposes, state and local governments will now infringe on the property rights of those with less economic and political power with more regularity. And these groups, low-income Americans, and a disparate number of African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities in America are the least able to bear that burden. As I have said, too many of our communities Minorities, the elderly, low-income, have witnessed an abuse of inner domain powers. Given this history of abuse, it is the hope of the NAACP that all legislative responses to kilo to be sensitive to those issues and that reality. We need to ensure that certain segments of our population have long been voiceless and this taking issues now have a voice. We need to understand how it has been easy to exploit these communities by imposing eminent domain not only in pursuit of economic development, but also in the name of addressing blight. Historically and today, it has been too easy to characterize racial and ethnic minorities, elderly communities, or other low-income communities as blighted for eminent domain purposes and subject them to the will of the government. If legislative proposals contain language that could potentially exclude these communities from protection against eminent domain abuses, we have failed in our responsibility to serve and give a voice to these particular constituencies. These communities should be afforded the same right and protection that all homeowners, businesses, business owners, and other property owners will be afforded in the federal policy response to Kelo. Additionally, it is considered the interest of our communities. We raise, in addition to broader concerns regarding the use of eminent domain for any purpose, including those purposes traditionally viewed as public purposes, such as highways, utilities, and even waste disposal. Even these more traditional uses of eminent domain have disproportionately burdened communities with the least political power, the poor, minorities, and working class Americans. Furthermore, it's not only our owners that suffer, but also our renters almost never discussed in this, in this criterion, whether they be residents of small businesses are provided almost no protections and pay a heavy and uncompensated price when eminent domain is imposed. For these reasons, as the majority in Kilo suggested, there must be sufficient process protections and for communities including racial and ethnic minorities, regardless of the purpose and however beneficial to the public, The process must be open, and the participation of communities needs to be guaranteed and, quite frankly, even mandated. The power must be balanced. The decisions must be made in a way that is truly in the best interest of those communities, even those that will lose their property in this process. So I thank you very much and look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Hillary, Um, your um, mention of um, the euphemism black removal has reminded me of um, another uh, non euphemism, namely urban renewal, which is the uh, rationale for the federal bulldozer, federal funds being used to bring about urban renewal, the result of which is the um, abolition of whole communities uh, from the Berman case, the Pole Town case in uh, Detroit and so forth, just uh, we see this all across the country. Um, Before we turn to the questions from the audience, let me uh, again uh, mention that um, we're here not simply to mark the 10th anniversary of Kilo, but also the publication of the book that is the definitive account of that uh, that, uh, unfortunate event, namely The Grasping Hand, Kilo v. City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain, by Professor Ilya Soman, which is available out, <clears throat> excuse me, outside at a discount and um, I'm sure that Ilya will be glad to sign your book for you. Um, let's now turn to your questions. Uh, please wait till the microphone gets to you. Uh, identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have and please make it a question and not a statement and then um, um, we will um, break when we're through the Q&A for lunch. <clears throat> uh, we have a question right here.
4: Thank you. And thanks for all your wonderful presentation. Could you identify yourself, please? My name's Li Yang. Uh, I really involve a lot of social issues. And this topic is one of my major interests that to see how are we going to have the reform. I just wonder if you can tell how many kind of cases, like the one in Rockville City, Maryland, the Town Square Project. There is uh, abuse or eminent or men, but not the way we think to victimize just a, a small group or racial profiling or something like that, but they are really criminalized or victimized the whole taxpayers. So, do you want me to give you some description? (laughs) The town square, there is a transfer from private property to private outcome, the product. But the total is the government have to pay, I think, 99 million plus uh, to this uh, private owner. And this equivalent to probably twice as much of total revenue of the local city. And then of course they use abuse or a public-private partnership, having no man and judicial power for all this money transfer. And actually the judicial record is really very messy. So I just wonder if we have this kind of record, how many cases are those? And can we bring up all those city taxpayers together? Because it's a very strong power. If you don't do this, then the money it's a go-to. Uh, okay, we've got,
0: okay, we've got your question. All right. Uh, the private partnership uh, ship issue is, of course, often uh, at the base of these kinds of cases. Uh, Dana, do you want to?
1: Sure, and, and I can talk a little bit about Maryland as well. Um, Maryland is a place that had virtually no legislative reform, um, and... That that is a huge problem, particularly actually in Baltimore, which has been historically a huge abuser of eminent domain. Um, The Maryland High Court, which is in Maryland called the Court of Appeals, um, has cut back on the use of quick take, um, particularly by the uh, Baltimore Redevelopment Authority, but it has not yet heard a case about the use of of eminent domain in non-quick-take since Kilo. Prior to Kilo, it had already approved eminent domain for economic development, but that was a long time ago, and a lot of the comments in the quick-take decisions suggest they might come out differently now, but it has not gotten up there. Um, Meanwhile, you're absolutely right, the public-private partnerships are very difficult to deal with because it gives a Public veneer to a taking that's a private taking, and that is a major problem um, in Maryland and in other places. When that happens, it was true in New London as well, um, as Scott described. It was nominally a um, a nonprofit, but it was done with the city, and it was going to go to a developer at a huge discount. So. Um, That does make a very difficult situation. Um, Baltimore is a hard place to organize, but I would definitely encourage you to do that. Um, Certainly in Baltimore County, uh, people were successful at organizing and preventing the use of eminent domain, and that's something that you can attempt in the city as well. The earlier you organize in in the process the easier it is to get it defeated. But even later, sometimes it works, and it takes a lot of energy and effort on the part of the home and the business owners, and that's exhausting. But you may actually be able to prevent it, and I would, I would encourage you to, uh, to do that.
0: Did you want to add on Virginia? Okay. Other questions? Yes, right over here.
4: Hi. um, My name is Elaine Middleman. I'm an attorney. I've been working on the Skyland project since 2004, and it still doesn't exist. The the D.C. Council passed a law to take the uh, property by eminent domain, and as of now, it's supposed to be a Walmart. And one of the fundamental issues, I think, is that they've used HUD money. The D.C. government ignores where the money came from, but it's federal HUD money, which I've asked HUD to do oversight, which they have not done, because it's supposed to be, quote, benefit low, low and moderate income persons. And as I said, the project right now is essentially supposed to be a Walmart. And I think there's a huge subsidy for the developer as well. I think they're selling him the property for a minimal amount, and it's worth probably $30 million. And, and the HUD money spent is about $40 million. So it's a, it's an outrage.
0: Anybody want to comment on
1: that? Uh sure and 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 maybe hillary would like to as well about the hud thing there was virtually no federal legislative reform that passed and the one tiny thing that passed was supposed to be a prohibition on the use of hud money and dot money for eminent domain for economic development but you're right that there's no enforcement mechanism and that is a, a huge problem but one of one of the real um Problems that's come throughout. I mean, in reference to the federal bulldozer, but a lot of this stuff historically has been federally funded. I mean, all of those urban renewal condemnations that happened in the '50s and '60s were federally funded, and they devastated the country. Um, And it is something needs to be done about the use of federal money in this fashion. Um, I don't know if, if you think there's any chance of an enforcement mechanism on uh, the prohibition of spending HUD money that way, but it is a problem.
3: I, I have to agree, especially in the circumstances along these lines. As I mentioned, the, the involvement of the local community in any projects like this must be insisted upon, must be mandated, as a matter of fact, but real power has to be given to those communities as well. Exactly. Which is exactly the problem and the point. So we're we're very strongly with this. Our local branch of the NAACP here in D.C. has had some involvement with some of the people living in those communities, as we discussed. The real changes that are happening here in Washington. And it doesn't take a rocket science to see all the developments going on around us. All we have to do is take a little field trip out to the corner, outside, and we can look across the, the, the Washington, D.C. skyline and see all those huge cranes. In which development projects are underway we've got a new soccer stadium coming in that's going to displace many in the southeast section of washington and other places as well we have to insist on a process that allows those who live in those communities as we mentioned not just those who own the properties but also those who still call that home those who rent and lease and we do not have it no i agree and it's a com- it's a conversation worthwhile having with our, our newly enshrined uh, our sworn in mayor. Yeah, I've about
4: um, about it they ignore the fact that those people this
3: place. All they want to care about is the, the new development. Absolutely.
4: Mayor Brady
3: exactly. The with, without managing the transition. Again, that's a major challenge for all of us, I think, particularly think about those communities. One of the reasons we put projects like that in those communities is, quite frankly, they need the services. And we appreciate that on one hand. On the other hand, we know all transition comes along with with many concerns as we move in this direction. People that already live there, even the store owners, they're quite frankly going to have to move themselves one way or another. These are not people that necessarily own the property that they're in, but people that are renting that property. And as such, again, the safeguards are even fewer and further between. So we're very much with you in making sure that a project like that is truly managed. And I, I look forward to putting you in contact <clears throat> with our see local
2: people. Thank you. Your dilemma illustrates the example of what I would call token legislation or the, the example of the Bill of Rights that creates no rights. You have a prohibition on the use of the HUD funds but no enforcement mechanism. So a legislator passed that, and he or she is going out and touting their, to their constituency, look at this great property rights bill that I passed. But it's meaningless and has no effect in a court of law.
0: Yeah. Well, so much of this comes up because the government planners, uh, of which there's no shortage, uh, think that they can plan whole communities. And we have a perfect example of that in the, the Kilo case. Uh, this was a case that arose because the Pfizer pharmaceutical company wanted to expand. They had just uh, uh, come up with a, a new uh, ph- uh, product, namely Viagra. So things were looking up, so to speak and <laughs> and and so 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 th- then then the, the the downfall came shortly thereafter of the, of the market and the the plans were abandoned and so the land sits there Fallow, and so that 's uh, that's, that's what we, um, what we so often see in these i mean Pole town is a good example that was a clearing thirty eight hundred homes and small businesses in the community uh, in a section of Detroit uh, for the uh, build, so they could build a Cadillac plant which um, was done on the promise of new jobs and so on and so forth. Uh, well, those the, the jobs never materialized to the extent that uh, that were promised by the by the um, officials. And of course, so often what happens is that the officials who bring all of this about are no longer in office when the failures take place, and so they, they don't get blamed for it. And so, if I'm not mistaken, that catalog plant has has closed or closed afterward. And so, um, fortunately, uh, the Supreme Court of uh, uh, Michigan. Uh, reversed, uh, literally reversed. Poll town uh, in, um, in in two thousand six or seven. Or the the Hathcock, Hathcock, the Hathcock decision. Yes. Okay, uh, John.
5: After Roger's excellent joke on Viagra, I hate to be a downer, <laughs> but um, oh. uh, Jeremy and I guess I'm 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 asking both Jeremy and Dana this. One of the problems. Now identify how-
0: yourself, please, John. I beg your pardon? Identify yourself.
5: John Taylor with the Virginia Institute. Um, One of the problems we have in Virginia is you have the large law firms uh, that make massive donations to political candidates. And then the attorney general's office turns around and farms cases out to those large law firms to represent the state. And I think your law firm has even put together a list of cases where the law firms were, were were paid more uh for their time than what the property owner was willing to settle for in the first place a should this be allowed and b dana does this happen everywhere or, or is this just um the virginia way
1: um well if what you're saying is that they hire private firms to represent uh, the condemning authority. Yeah, I mean, that happens, it's, it, it does happen everywhere, but it doesn't happen all the time. So we've seen both. We've seen um, city attorneys, or in some cases, rarely state attorneys, do the representation. On the other hand, a lot of times they do hire private counsel. So it happens either way. You're absolutely right that it can happen that a pri- that private counsel can run up the bill more, of course, than in-house counsel. Um, I think that's true, not just in eminent domain, but everywhere it is a problem. Um, but it is always an issue with eminent domain and, and something that we wonder about all the time. Wouldn't it just be less expensive not to do it. And, and honestly, I think much of what happens is a kind of government arrogance. We have the power to take this, and they are deeply, bitterly offended when someone opposes that. And that's something we see in, in all of our litigation. Um, I tell our New recruits uh, to IJ that your opposing counsel uh, in eminent domain cases will be the most difficult to deal with of any case you litigate at IJ. Now, I will say this they were actually better in Kilo than I think any other eminent domain case we've litigated. Um, But even so, they are the bitterest cases because the government in those cases is. They feel like it strikes at the core of their power. And what you will see is that in in other kinds of constitutional cases, often the client, the government agency, doesn't really care. But they care in eminent domain. And that kind of uh, absolute determination to win at any cost is often seen, so you're right, it logically doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense in Kilo either. They didn't need that property, they weren't gonna do anything with it, and they knew it at the beginning. But they felt they had the right to take it, and they would win if they fought, and so they went forward, and they did win. But they ended up with a big field of nothing. And I think that that is common, actually.
2: I'm really glad to hear Dana say that, it makes me feel like I'm maybe not as unlikable as I thought I was, because the last mediation that I had, the judge came in and first thing he said to me was, they really hate you in the other room. Said that to me and the other attorney, and we see it all the time, where for whatever reason it it becomes personal. You'd think it would be personal to the owner, but when you're dealing with the attorneys on the other side and the condemning authority, what I see, and it's really sad, and I try to work through this at the beginning of every case. but. A real personal animus towards the owner is if they're an impediment and they've done something wrong for owning private property that's in the way of the project. And so I see it repeatedly.
0: And uh, we we uh, see it also in the regulatory takings domain, don't we? Yes, sir. Uh, they're, they're, um, the bureaucrats who run the planning agencies are past masters at stalling, at... Uh, they, go, they actually have training programs for uh, the attorneys who work for the government to how to stretch the proceedings out for years and years uh, until the uh, adversary, the person whose property is at issue, uh, either uh, is exhausted uh, psychologically or fi- uh, financially. In fact, in the uh, Lake Tahoe case, which involved over 700 uh, litigants, uh, it went on so long that fully a third of them had died by the time the case was resolved against them. So. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Ilya, a learned question. <laughs>
6: Ilya Soman, George Mason University, uh, also on the previous panel. Uh, I'm not going to try to take issue with some of the things where Dane and I disagree, except to mention I do discuss those judicial decisions at some length in the book, and I agree actually they make important progress. But I do want to ask about something all three of you adverted to, which is the issue of just compensation. If I understand all of you correctly, it seems like all three of you don't like the Standard Supreme Court's approach is that there should be fair market value compensation, that it should be somewhat more. And of course, there are several different models, at least several, of how much more there should be and how do we figure it out. And I was wondering if you could say something more about if fair market value is too little, what would be sufficient and how would we calculate it? Would it just be a 10% premium every time? Would it be different for different types of properties? Would we make some attempt to estimate? each individual owner's sort of personal or subjective value or we do something else altogether. So just wondering what your views are on that in terms of what's the alternative in your view to fair market value?
0: Who wants to
6: start there?
0: Jeremy?
2: Fair market value would be fine if the owner actually ended up with fair market value. And so I'm not advocating for anything above fair market value. But to give you an example, when the jury is told to go decide what fair market value is, in some states, they'll say, you can't consider the project. So to give you a good example, last year we had a case where they were building a bridge next to our client's property. High-rise bridge was going to put the property in a hole, and a small part of our property was being taken not for the actual bridge itself, but for some of the drainage easements and some of the other areas. And the Virginia standard is you look at the fair market value before and after the project to determine the value of the damages. The condemning authority argued, well, the jury's not allowed to consider the bridge. And we said, what? What? The- The bridge, after the project's built, the bridge is going to be there. You have to consider the bridge to determine fair market value after the project. And fortunately, we prevailed in that. In in Virginia, typically, we get to consider the project. But in some states, they say you're not allowed to consider the project. So the, the idea of fair market value is really a fiction because we're telling the jury, go out and determine fair market value, but you can't consider all the facts. You can't even consider the project that's being built. And so fair market value would be fine if it was truly fair market value and then also if the owners were reimbursed for litigation expenses when it was proven that the condemning authority didn't make a fair offer. And then all the things that are traditionally non-compensable under a bright-line rule, such as lost profits, access issues, if all those were permitted and we said, all right, we're going to fulfill just compensation by saying fair market value, and it was truly fair market value and the jury got to hear all the evidence, I think it would satisfy the constitutional requirement. Jenna, do you
0: want to add anything to that?
2: Uh, I would... In, in, in true
3: Washington-speak, I would associate myself with the uh, issues that are just being raised. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely accurate. The snapshot is often taken of the value of property, quite frankly, does include, many cases, that hidden value that's in those properties. Clearly, someone saying those properties are worth something more and willing to invest in it. As think about any properties in our country, we think about how it appreciates in its value. And certainly, the consideration of projects along those lines Add to the appreciation value of property so fair market value must include those tenants as well so we fully agree with that
1: and I actually do want to add one other thing which is renters um, which in sure. many states get just nothing and they may have had in the case of businesses they may have had a 10 year lease which they're losing which has a significant value that is not recoverable. And it's true, too, for uh, for home renters, that they may have a situation that is far, far better, more valuable than what they can purchase, and they get nothing at all. And, th- and that should not happen.
0: Well, you're all too generous to the government. Um, <laughs> the, all you need to know to realize that fair market value is not just compensation is the fact that the owner doesn't have his property on the market. Because... <laughs> That means it's worth more to him in his hands than it is than it will fetch on the market. And so that's not fair market value, or that's not just compensation for him. Indeed, the only compensation that is just for him is that compensation that will render him indifferent as to whether he keeps the property or gets the compensation. Now we've found on an indifference curve where it is that we truly have just compensation. Well, with that, let me draw this to a conclusion and let me uh, remind you that the book is available outside. Ilya Soman will be glad to sign it for you. Um, We're going to break for lunch now up in the George M. Yeager Conference Center on the second floor. There are restrooms on this floor as well as on the second floor. But before we do, let's have a warm round of applause for our speakers.